0: Hi, I'm Kelsey. And I'm Sienna. And you're listening to And Yet, conversations about the intersection of culture and health. Why do we go there?
1: Because frankly, we need to. And we want you to know we're with you. We all have a story we need to help unpack. But where do we fucking start?
0: And where do we even end? Here's your permission to meet us in the messy middle the And Yet podcast with Sienna and Kelsey. Hey listeners, welcome back to the And Yet Podcast. This is Kelsey and Sienna. (laughs) So Kelsey, did you know 80 to
1: 90% of women suffer
0: from PMS? I know that now. (laughs) I mean, does that surprise you? No, I mean, honestly, that statistic is lower than I would have thought.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's what study you're looking at as well.
0: Well, yeah, and I mean, the reason I say that statistic feels lower is only because we're just, it's just drilled into us how normal PMS
1: is, even though we actually or learning that PMS is not normal. Absolutely, I think it's just built. It's I say often, and I know it sounds very overdramatic, but I say often that I think it's one of the biggest injustices in that's kind of carried on throughout life is that women are led to believe that we should suffer dramatic pain every month. Yeah, fair This episode, menstrual mindfulness, is about empowering women to use their menstrual cycle as an asset. And how we can get to a point where actually we can frame it in a really positive mindset, and we can use it an asset. Because right now, the eighty to ninety percent of us who do suffer from PMS and and period pain are suffering, and, and we certainly don't want to ignore that either.
0: Yeah, and if it's okay, I also want to just say that we use the term women. Sienna and I are, are both identify as women, and I think we're having a hard time sometimes being more inclusive, because uh, a lot of people do not identify as women, but are still suffering from PMS. That's a really great point,
1: Kels. I talk a lot about how women have been left out of the health conversations in times past, and in particularly left out of scientific studies up until the late 80s. But that's even more relevant and true of the trans community and non-binary people. So it's it's a really great point. So thank you for bringing it up.
0: I don't think we did a good job of, about being as inclusive in this particular episode, although I think the information, especially the information that Dr. Laura Bryden presents is, is beneficial for everyone to listen to.
1: Yeah, but absolutely. maybe, maybe we should
0: far. do, yeah, yeah. And I think maybe we'll, we'll do a, an episode more around gender identity in the health and wellness
1: community in the future. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's a great goal. So yeah, with that, as we said, it's a huge amount still to learn about this area of health. And there's new information coming out like literally every day. The great thing is that Lara Bryden is seriously on top of these things. And in this episode, she includes a plethora of new information that we're really psyched to share with you.
0: Yeah, so a little information about Lara. Lara Bryden is a naturopathic doctor with over 20 years of experience leading the change to better periods. Her mission is to empower women to have easy, symptomless periods and join the worldwide period revolution. Lara's book, Period Repair Manual, provides practical period solutions using nutrition, supplements, and natural hormones. She currently splits her time between her home in New Zealand and her practice in Sydney, Australia.
1: Welcome, Dr. Lara Bryden. we're thrilled to talk to you this morning. Hi, thanks for having me. So I was recommended Lara's book, The Period Repair Manual, by my sister-in-law, who is an absolute gem, because it was the first time I'd really felt like my natural feelings and, and inclinations around kind of menstrual health and, and female health in general was was kind of confirmed, and I felt like I, I wasn't alone in, in this area. So thank you so much for that as a start. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. But how did you become involved in, in this area of, of menstrual and hormonal health and- and what led you to kind of take a more natural approach? Yeah, well, I first
2: trained as a naturopathic doctor more than 20 years ago. And almost from the beginning, most of the patients I was seeing were women who needed other solutions for things like PCOS and period pain and PMS and perimenopause. And I just had to you know, take what I'd learned as a naturopathic doctor and then apply that clinically. And I did that for 20 years with patients. And that's what gave me the information to put into period repair manual.
1: Wow. So w- were you seeing those types of questions more frequently than, than others?
2: I was just, I don't know why, you know, I think every clinician would tell you that they just get start to get a certain kind of patient Same. who's coming to them. So I was just seeing a, yeah. lot of, a lot of patients with period problems. I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think because they were just getting no answers from conventional medicine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I talk about this. I think our listeners are probably going to get really tired of hearing me talk about it, but <laughs> I have endometriosis, so it took a long time for me to find different methods that worked for managing my symptoms. So yeah, I think it's really important that women are being heard that you know there's other options and
2: yeah, it's good to bring up endometriosis because it's for too long it's just been silent and unknown and women just being told you know it's just you, this is just how periods are, but no. As we all know, periods are not supposed to be painful, so that it's never you can never say that enough.
1: Yeah, and and that leads us to so one of the main themes in in your amazing book is is talking about how menstrual health is an indicator of overall health. Can you talk a little bit what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, the period, the menstrual cycle, is not separate from the rest of our health, even though it's been treated that way by conventional medicine. Yeah. it's been kind of put in the two hard box really in this compartmentalized. <laughs> You know, yeah, part of the body can. saying, "Oh, don't worry about that." You know, we'll just give you the pill for that, and then there's then there's the rest of your health. But of course, it's not separate from the rest of our health in many ways. As you say, it's an indication of our underlying health, and so that's why in Period Repair Manual, I talk about our period being our monthly report card. It's a very handy way to kind of check in with what's happening. And more and more, I've been thinking that I actually feel sorry for men that they don't have periods for that reason they don't get to have that <laughs> nice barometer of what's going on
0: <laughs> yeah well so what could our what can our periods tell us or what are they telling us yeah well one of the first things to mention cuz this 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 needs to be said
2: is that getting a period is getting a period which and by period i mean an ovulatory cycle so a proper natural mm-hmm. menstrual cycle where ovulation happened and then you have a, what's called a luteal phase, which is the second half of the cycle, and then you have a bleed. That's, that's the only kind of bleed that can really be called a period. Any other mm-hmm. kind of bleed, whether it's a pill bleed or what's called an anovulatory cycle, a, just a, a cycle where ovulation did not occur, those are technically not periods. So in answer to your question of what can a period tell you, if you're having a proper period as in you're ovulating regularly, then you know that the body is pretty happy about a number of things. Number one being, it's happy that you're getting enough to eat. And I mention this mm-hmm. because I'm seeing this more and more. And I've been practicing for like 25 years. So, this is, I'm telling you, this, this, the last five to 10 years, there is a r- really strong uptick in women losing their periods because of undereating, either because of undereating really? or undereating carbohydrates. And it's really concerning wow. <laughs> to me. So, I can never, yeah, yeah. this is one of my things that I keep repeating is, you know there are lots of different reasons potentially to lose a period, but one of the big ones is that you're not eating enough. So,
1: yeah. And do you think it's the last five to ten years because of the popularity of the Atkins and Keto and that kind of thing, or, or yeah? Why do you, why do you think it's yeah? Okay. I do
2: actually. I think it's I think it's a lot of health bloggers who mainly men who have literally like no idea of what women's bodies need. <laughs> Basically, have this yeah, idea totally. that this diet worked for me ergo therefore it's fine it's good for everybody and i can't tell you how many twitter arguments i've had with you know some 40 year old guy who's <laughs> saying but you know what you know things like mansplaining to me about a low-carb diet i'm like look,
1: a di- <laughs> oh, the God. diet that
2: the diet that works for you may not be the diet that's going to work for a 20 year old girl like totally. that should be obvious when you think about it but yeah,
0: yeah. You
1: know. yeah. sorry i'm feeling I'm a bit feisty really this
2: morning after about a
1: few no I, yeah <laughs> please get feisty
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah.
2: So that's one way that our periods are our monthly report card. Of course, it, the lack of periods can tell other stories. It can tell us something about insulin resistance or an underlying issue with PCOS, which is actually quite a different situation. It can tell, an irregular period can tell the story of an underlying thyroid problem or a gluten problem. Those are just mm-hmm. a few of the examples.
1: A gluten problem. Yeah. I hadn't hadn't come across that before. Yeah. What so true
2: right? Yeah, true gluten sensitivity. And by true gluten gluten sensitivity, I don't just mean celiac disease. I mean also the group of people who have what's called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. They have a genetic. They usually have the the gene for right, right. the celiac. This is something you know I I pay t- attention to with my patients. If a true gluten sensitivity might not have digestive problems. They might just have the symptom of, say, depression, brain fog, and no periods or very low estrogen or very kind of irregular ovulation. That's a, actually one of the first patient stories in my book, Period to Manual. I tell the story. I give the present the case of a patient who that was her only kind of sign that something was going on with gluten is that she was having these, you know, a period every two to three months kind of thing.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. And Kelsey and I were, were discussing and discuss a lot how uh, we have friends or just kind of regularly hear women kind of say, oh, I only have a, a period every six months or every three months or whatever it might be. But that's fine, you know, whatever. And yeah. very much brush it off is, is either kind of normal.
0: Yeah, like I've heard, I have friends who are like, oh, my sister's the same way or my mom's the same way. And I'm just inside cringing like, no, that's not yeah. normal. Like that's not healthy. And you might feel OK, but something else is going on.
2: Let me respond to that because that's actually such Please. an important, yeah, so that's, that goes back to what I was just saying before that, okay, those, when people say I have only a few periods per year, those are not periods. So mm-hmm. as in, they're not what I just described is an ovulatory cycle. So is that term, do you think your listeners will kind of know an ovulatory cycle is a, a cycle, a, a menstrual cycle where ovulation happened and you went through all the right stages make estrogen and then progesterone it's a very specific thing that Mm -hmm. we do and that that's why the period is monthly because that's about how long it takes to do that so if that's not happening then you can still get the occasional random just breakthrough bleed essentially and they're not real periods i just this is all fresh in my mind because i just wrote a blog post called three signs your period is not really a period so readers, oh, your, your listeners can <laughs> read about it are there. Oh. Ovulation is the main event of our hormonal yeah. life. Ideally, we should be ovulating, you know, when we're in our years between kind of 15 and 50, we should be ovulating about once a month if we're not pregnant or breastfeeding. And the advantage of that is that's how we make hormones. That's how we make estrogen. And particularly, that's how we make progesterone, which gives us long-term benefits. So the way I describe it is, Every ovulatory cycle is like a deposit into the long term bank account of health. Builds bone. It's good for the cardiovascular system. It's good for the brain. And it's that little kind of deposit every month, right? If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So mm. that's why women who don't get periods or don't ovulate have a you know have a problem with bones long term, have a greater risk of osteoporosis have a greater risk of heart disease, have a greater risk of dementia. This is all in the science and the literature. And the yeah. same goes for the pill. We do need to just just state that again. The pill bleeds are not periods. So with the pill, of course, you have yeah. no ovulation. You make no progesterone. The, the drugs in the pill have names like levonorgestrel and drospirenone, and they're not progesterone. And they don't give the same benefits for long-term health of bone, mm-hmm. brains, or heart which is why you see the same thing with the pill. So you see, there's not a lot of information about this yet, but what we do know is that women who take the pill do not reach what's called peak bone density. So they don't build up bones wow. in, their, in our early 20s, like we're supposed to, you know, potentially there's, potentially I predict with the pill, you know, we're going to see some long-term trends in terms of other potential issues. Certainly we know the pill affects mood. And I think that one of the reasons is yeah. it because it robs us of the, the hormones, estrogen, and progesterone that our brain actually needs for health (laughs) and for mood. So... Yeah, it's about, yeah, I'm, uh, a cheerle- uh, I'm a cheerleader for hormones. I guess you can put it that way. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, <laughs> love it. No, honestly, it's so <laughs> that's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful how how positively, in a very kind of like relaxed way that you talk about it, which yeah. is which is really helpful. Yeah. and I, I love how you kind of said that you feel sorry for men yeah. not yeah. actually having that. Like it's usually such the reverse vernacular, and it's so nice nice to hear that.
2: I know, and also if you just to compare with men. Because of course, the whole everything about health is from the male perspective. So, in the general yeah. conversation about health, that's actually a conversation about men's bodies. So, anything about women's <laughs> so bodies—it's so true, yeah. especially in the natural health and the kind of nutrition—and it's all about a lot yeah. of you know what works for men. And then yeah. they kind of do a little side issue. It's like, oh, a little post note. P.S. Oh. Plus, you know, if you want to make a baby, then it's a bit different. But you know, that that's not that's (laughs) women's hormones and bodies are not just for making babies. Like this is how our body works. Having estrogen and progesterone every month is how our body works. We need those hormones just as much as men need testosterone. So Mm
1: -hmm. to say
2: that that women don't need ovulation would be literally like saying to men, you don't need testosterone until you're ready to make a baby.
1: You know, that's essentially what oh, it's saying. so profound. It's so <laughs> true. Ah, oh, yes. That is Thank they you. could all
0: do with a little less. I'm I <laughs> yeah, yeah. in my, <laughs> my opinion. But yeah, yeah.
1: true that. And also I kind of, you know, they they have their own hormonal cycle in a way, right? It's just more on a daily basis. Like they start out with more testosterone exactly. in it.
2: <laughs> yeah, they have yeah. a they have a circadian. And we do too, actually. We have this we have both. We have this. we have the daily and right. monthly. They have a monthly hormonal cycle and but the thing is again, you know, if men had to make their testosterone in a monthly cycle the way we make our hormones, we would never stop hearing about ovulation. It would be they'd be talking about it all the time. <laughs> if <laughs> right? if, if yeah. they needed it. So I'm just trying to reclaim this, you know, for, for general health. It's not just a fertility thing. It's not just yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh here, here. Well, and along those lines, I think what else women hear about our hormones and our cycles is that PMS is normal that women just get crazy for a week out of the month, you know, all these terms that we're kind of faced with. And I don't think that PMS is actually normal. And I don't think that you think that either. No, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could kind of tell us a little bit more like what symptoms are normal or considered healthy and and what really aren't. Yeah,
2: Yeah. Okay. So our hormones fluctuate. That's a good thing. That's actually because that's the way hormones work. So just kind of back to my key Mm -hmm. message briefly about how female hormones are an asset, not a liability. And they go up and down. And we do need some degree of resilience, kind of a physiological resilience to ride those ups and downs. Because, yes, so as estrogen is high in the first part of our cycle. In the follicular phase, it's quite stimulating. It can create almost sort of a euphoria. Certainly, a much more outgoing, confident feeling leading up to ovulation. A lot of women celebrate that, and then progesterone comes in in the second half of the cycle. It is sedating. It, it it has, you know, it definitely affects the brain. Some women can react. I wouldn't say badly, but some women don't don't react well to the sort of ups and downs of progesterone, and that would create the true more PMS kind of PMDD picture. But this, mm-hmm. this the problem is not progesterone. This is my main message. And this is backed up by the research too, that women who do experience a lot of PMS, we know now they have just a variant of their, genetic variant of their receptors, both to progesterone and to a neurotransmitter called GABA, which is what mm-hmm. progesterone interacts with. Progesterone actually turns into uh, what's called a neurosteroid that, you know, feels a lot like GABA. So it's interacting with those Receptors. So the solution and what I put forward in my book and a lot of my writing is to create a resilience to the ups and downs of particularly progesterone. And that means, it won't be a surprise to you, I'm sure, one of the first ways to do that is to reduce inflammation. Because any kind of chronic yeah, inflammation yeah. in the body interferes with the body's response. It interfe- it changes how receptors react to things. It changes neurotransmitter levels. So it should be empowering for women because there's lots of ways you can do just with diet to really dial down any negative experience of your ups and downs and instead just kind of get the benefits of those subtle ups and downs of hormones, if that makes sense. One, one of the big players I'll just say is histamine. I don't know if you guys know, if you've talked about that much in your podcast already, but histamine is part of the immune system. It's part of the, it's a neurotransmitter that affects mood. I think it's a big player in PMS. It's also interacts with the hormonal system and big time interacts with estrogen. So Right away, there, because we know how to lower histamine with diet, potentially, and supporting gut health. So, right there, there's a way in, right? You can, if you can recognize for a certain individual woman that histamine is playing a role, then you just have to dial that down. And then suddenly, her own estrogen is not as stimulating, it's not as problematic.
0: To me, that's huge because you're actually the first person I've ever heard speak to that point
1: to histamine. Yeah, Yeah. totally. Maybe you could expand on that a little bit. And when you say, Reduce histamine in a diet. I, I actually wouldn't know how to okay, do let's that. Okay, yeah. let's talk yeah.
2: about histamine. Let's talk about histamine because histamine is a player in endometriosis as well. So,
0: yeah, my ears are open. Yeah. So,
2: histamine is made by a part of the immune system called the mast cells, which are, there's actually a huge number of them in the uterus. And on the ovaries, kind of all throughout the um, mast cells and histamine are a big player in female reproduction. They're involved. Actually, you need a certain amount of histamine to be able to ovulate, for example. So it's it's there. You know, it's mm-hmm. happening. And when histamine is high, which can happen for different reasons it increases quite dramatically estrogen. So it goes it goes into kind of a feed-forward reaction with estrogen where histamine stimulates estrogen and estrogen stimulates histamine and you get this little kind of runaway train. And I think a lot of the symptoms that women describe as estrogen dominance, this kind of fluid retention and feeling
1: yeah. overstimulated
2: and irritable and it's actually linked to histamine. We know that histamine plays a role in period pain, it's definitely playing a role in endometriosis in that it's, you know, it's causing estrogen to surge. It's also potentially quite, histamine is quite inflammatory. It's part of the inflammatory response, just one part yeah, of many inflammatory oh yeah, that things sense. that are going on with endometriosis. So endometriosis is a, f- fundamentally, it's it's actually not a hormonal condition. It's an inflammatory disease that's present mm-hmm. and that is interacts with, you know, it's very much affected by hormones. So histamine is one player. In that, in my own work with patients, the big when I really treat histamine is PMS and period pain and endometriosis, but together with some other immune things with endometriosis. So the ways to there's no definitive test for a histamine problem, unfortunately. There's right.
0: I was just going to ask, like, what what to look for? How would you know if that was happening? Yeah,
2: the symptoms are the symptoms of high histamine include swelling of some kind of tension, like there could be hives or it just could be you know, skin swelling. That's not always there, but headaches, mm-hmm. brain fog, sometimes diarrhea, low blood pressure. Is it, is, you can read this. I have a couple blog posts about histamine intolerance and list some of the symptoms there. And a lot of them look a lot like PMS, which is why I started kind of really taking this angle with my PMS patients quite a few years ago. And then there's no, unfortunately, there's no way to test. You can try to measure blood histamine, but it doesn't it's not very accurate. I think what a lot of people are doing these days is doing, if, if you're doing any DNA testing or genetic testing, which I'm doing a bit more now with my patients, you can measure the gene for what's called the DAO enzyme. That's the enzyme mm-hmm. that clears histamine through the gut. One of my patients who I've tested who have very strong kind of estrogen-dominant symptoms, sometimes endometriosis, you know, that severe PMS picture, so far, all the ones I've seen do have the variant of this DAO or histamine-clearing enzyme. So I feel like that's potentially a you know a useful way to go forward. And then the other way to diagnose histamine intolerance or what's another type of histamine problem is called mast cell activation syndrome. Another way to essentially diagnose it, actually, is just to try treating it, <laughs> which in the case of hist- right. histamine yeah. intolerance means avoiding... The two main histamine stimulating foods, which are cows' dairy and alcohol, and then avoiding, especially during the time of PMS or the time of symptoms, avoiding foods that actually contain histamine, which would be things like fermented foods and bone broth and avocado oh. and a lot of the kind of superfoods. Actually, I had a patient just a couple. By the way, avocado yeah. <laughs> we're being
0: here, like all the all these like these are going to cure you. Yeah, <laughs> you really more harmful. Yeah.
2: I had a patient a couple of weeks ago. She was just like, oh my, oh my goodness. She's like, that's, exa- that's all I'm eating is what you just described there in terms yeah. of histamine foods. Cause she went on to sort of a paleo diet to get healthier. And in her case, yeah, she wow. found that her perimenopausal PMS just went crazy. Like just went off the charts completely wow. and couldn't sleep. That, oh, that's the other symptom of histamine intolerance is insomnia. So she removed oh. those foods and within three days felt better. Like that's the thing about histamine, actually. It's it's pretty quick, which is nice because some things in natural health take a long time, like removing gluten. The results can take months. Yeah. But removing histamine, right. the results can take like hours <laughs> like, or days. You
0: sort of start to feel better. Oh, my God. Okay.
1: I, I feel like this needs like can use a lot. alert <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, like why why isn't this being talked about That's more? Crazy. Why, yeah, why is this? I, or are yeah. we just new to this? Or, um, or is, it's not yeah. widely <laughs>
2: talked about. I think it is talked about a bit more. There is a you can put them in the show notes if you want. My most recent blog post about it is called I think I called it Histamine Intolerance and a Brand New Way of Treating PMS, something like that. But there right. are certainly there's people. There's, I mean, there's various people talking about the role of histamine. And mast cells in female hormone disor- disorders. It's not only me. So yeah, once you start wow. googling it, you'll see. Oh, well, <laughs> it's all there.
1: No, yeah, thank no, you it's for fascinating. that. I- I'd yeah. heard of you know inf- trying to reduce inflammation in the diet, and and I started prescribing to a, a dairy free diet, and that certainly helped my period pain and just kind yeah. of general well being. I-, I think <laughs> for me, but I hadn't heard of histamine before, so that's yeah. super interesting. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm going back to, to that little bit of a question of, of the, what's kind of normal and what's not right. for PMS. So, cause I'm thinking about like, if I don't, when I don't eat dairy or a lot of salt right before my period, they're so much easier to manage, but just in terms of like physical symptoms, like cramps and migraines and, and things of that nature. So yeah, like what kind of PMS symptoms in that sense are okay? And what are ones where you should say, okay, this is a red flag and and maybe I need to make changes so that this goes away.
2: Yeah, well I set the bar pretty high. Like I would say yeah. <laughs> I would say no PMS symptoms is the goal. You know.
0: Yes. I'm with When you. I That's say much.
2: no symptoms, mm. I mean okay, and it varies too. So this is just speaking through my own experience. You know, I've never I've been blessed, you know, I've never really suffered severe PMS. But sometimes like if I've had a stressful month, this is the way, you know, PMS is actually a very it's also a monthly report card, but a much more finely tuned one. So even if you've just had a stressful month or two, you can show up in your PMS before it would ever go on to affect things like period regularity or anything like that. So I, I might say no PMS, you know, a period that just arrives really with no, you don't even know it's coming kind of thing. It's like, oh, my period app tells me it's coming or, oh, it's here. That's the extent of it. But, you know, I, if there's been stress or if the diet hasn't been great, you know, there could be a, like a slight wobble with the nervous system. Like for me, it would be a bit of insomnia or a bit of breast swelling, like just a sense that something, you know, mm-hmm. something subtle is going on. But that's the extent of it. My experience is for all of my patients over all of these years, that is possible for almost everybody. Yeah, you know, there's always, I guess, going to be that outlier who's got something really severe going on, but that's, that's not common. Most people can get there and have no symptoms.
1: Yeah, I used to have really severe PMS and, and still suffer a little bit from, from kind of cramps during my cycle, but used to have really bad PMS. And I started taking Vitex or Chase Tree yep. And that completely just cured me of PMS yeah. symptoms. I, I now, as you say, I, I can tell through my app, but that's about it. Yeah.
2: Actually, yeah, Vitex has done well. It's, it's actually one of the more better researched herbal medicines in, in terms mm-hmm. of clinical trials, specifically for PMS. I'll just say, people. I know there's a lot of women out there using it for just all kinds of things, using Vitex or Chase Tree for all sorts of problems. It's not a cure-all that way. It's definitely helpful for PMS, yeah, for and sure. it's helpful for certain things, for sure. but I don't love it for PCOS or endometriosis, actually, just on the, just to sort of broadly, yeah. Topic. But yeah, it, and it, the other things that work well for PMS are magnesium and vitamin B6. Very simple, not expensive. B6 works in a number of ways, it actually boosts serotonin and GABA, so some nice calming neurotransmitters supports the production of progesterone. But it's also, also, wait for it, you know, vitamin B6 clears histamine. It's one of the best ways to do that, one of the simplest wow. ways. Oh, good to know. Yeah. <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> so going back to PCOS for a hot second. Yeah. It seems to kind of be more commonplace in kind of everyday dialogue these days, but still seems to be a lot of confusion about what exactly it is and how you can diagnose it. And are, that
0: people are being misdiagnosed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Have you found that to be the case? And what, what do you think is the real problems in misdiagnosing something like PCOS? Very good question.
2: <laughs> I can talk for the rest of the <laughs> podcast about this, but we'll try, I'll try to
0: not. <laughs> okay, great.
1: <laughs> it's a big
2: problem. Okay. So my, my feeling now with PCOS is scientists, seriously, I really think, not to overstate it, but I think they need to just go back to the drawing board completely. <laughs> it's like just have a do-over right. on everything, certainly on the name, and most experts agree with that now. The name polycystic ovarian syndrome is extremely problematic because the condition has basically nothing to do with cysts on the ovaries, like zero to do with that. And it's hard to, you know, convince women of that when the conditions called polycystic ovarian syndrome. (laughs) Like it's just like this every time the word is said, it's it's giving the wrong message. So I'll just to state it clearly what it is actually, it's it's really a hormonal condition, endocrine condition, a full body hormonal condition of excess male hormones that's how it's defined. That's really, at the end of the day, that's that's yeah. the, all that it is. And it it's that, it's excess male hormones when other causes of excess male hormones have been ruled out. So there's some other things that can cause excess male hormones. There's something called adrenal hyperplasia, there's hyperlactin, all these other issues. So the doctor's job is to rule out those and then mm-hmm. and confirm that there are excess male hormones, either in the in that they can measure on blood test, or if there's really a strong symptom of hirsutism or facial hair, then that's enough also to diagnose. And that's essentially it, and not do an ultrasound. I've talked to a number of experts lately who are just saying there is really no reason to do an ultrasound to diagnose this condition, apart from the only reason might be to assess what degree um, of thickening of the uterine lining is happening, which which I can t- try to explain why that happens, but it's it's nothing to do with these so-called cysts on the ovaries because they're not cysts. They're just the eggs. You know, It depends how you use the word cyst. Like the ovary, a normal ovary is full of cysts in a way because it's full of little fluid-filled sacs, which are the eggs. And every month, there's a different mm-hmm. number of them. Every month, they're kind of reabsorbed yeah. and look different. Young women have a lot more follicles, a lot more eggs because they're young. That's a normal thing. So that's why it's, right. it's especially problematic to take an ultrasound and somehow, you know, even use the word polycystic for women under 25. And it, it just, in fact, according to the new international PCOS guidelines, which are the official guidelines, they say ultrasound should not be used at all in young women. Really? Uh, I would say it shouldn't be used at all in any woman for, for this purpose, for the diagnosing of PCOS. It's, right. Ultrasound is good for other things, obviously. It's good to diagnose. Well, and I thought, yeah. go ahead. Yeah.
0: Oh, no, I was just going to say in my, in my own, I've had for transvaginal ultrasounds just this year. (laughs) Well, last year, I guess. But what I found in my experience is that ultrasound technicians aren't typically trained to look for these types of conditions, Um, maybe more specifically endometriosis. I would think maybe it's the same with PCOS. So the technician is giving you a clean bill of health and that's not always the case.
2: Yeah. So certainly, I mean, there are other in terms of using a, an ultrasound, having an ultrasound to look for endometriosis, which you can't always see on endometriosis on ultrasound, as I'm sure and as I know you know, but sometimes you can. That's definitely a valid reason to have an ultrasound. The ultrasound can pick up other kinds of ovarian cysts, of which there are many different kinds, which some are more serious than others. An ultrasound can be used for that, but the problem isn't so much like with PCOS; it's the fact that polycystic ovaries. Is not a thing, <laughs> you know. It's not a. It's not a. It's yeah. not a disorder. Like it's not a thing to fight. It's not like an ovar- another kind of ovarian cyst or endometriosis, which are diseases, which are you know a problem. And a polycystic ovary is normal, can be normal, can occur in normal women. And In fact, it does occur in women, normal women, or you know women with normal hormones a lot of the time, at least a third of the time, and occurs in young women all the time. So you see the problem with trying to see a polycystic ovary and say anything about it. It doesn't mean anything. And and likewise, you can have full-blown PCOS, the hormonal condition, excess, hor- excess male hormones and not ovulating, and have normal-looking ovaries on ultrasound. So it, really, right. it okay. really needs to be... The diagnosis of the hormonal condition PCOS needs to be come at from the perspective of answering two questions. You know, are there male hormones present? excess male hormones, because it's normal to have some male hormones, of course. And mm-hmm. is there potentially a problem with irregular ovulation or having what are called anovulatory or not ovulatory cycles? Those are the two, the two main parts of PCOS. And just to make it even more complicated, I think I, I do manage to be quite a bit more clear about this all in my book, because it's a complicated topic
1: time,
2: yeah. But- okay, here's the other thing to understand. So if we can agree that PCOS is elevated male hormones plus probably irregular ovulation, although that doesn't have to always be there. But let's say we agree that that's the diagnostic criteria for the hormonal condition. The complicating issue is you can meet those criteria be- for lots of different reasons. Like you could have kind of arrived at that place where you have high male hormones and you could have arrived there because you're in a full blown insulin resistant picture, which is insulin resistance is pushing up your testosterone. Or as a completely separate thing that's happening, you could arrive at that same diagnostic criteria because your adrenal glands are pumping out too much male hormone. That's another type, if you will, of PCOS that qualifies for the diagnosis of PCOS, but is very different from the woman who has insulin resistance. If that makes sense, like the the underlying driver or reason for why you have male hormones can be different. So with my work, I I just say kind of move past the PCOS diagnosis. Well, first of all, question if you even have PCOS because a lot of the time you're told that you do and you don't. And then if you're con- convinced that you do have it, then look beyond that and look deeper. What I call deep diagnosis in my book is to look at what is driving it is it a temporary post pill situation which is pretty common is it insulin resistance which is the standard classic version of pcos but not everyone has that is it adrenal glands is it is it inflammation it can be other things that have pushed you there and then treat that right because there's no you can't treat something like just excess male hormones that could have happened for lots of different reasons you can't like you need to treat the underlying reason.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's really important to to reiterate. Kind of, you're not suggesting that that women who are suffering from PCOS, what is determined as PCOS symptoms, aren't having the symptoms. It's just that it's being ill defined. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Well, let's
2: let's clarify what the symptoms are. So PCOS. Yeah. yeah, So first of all, I'll just say straight off the bat, pain is not a symptom of PCOS. Pain is not a symptom. Okay. That's good. That's good
1: to point out. Pain is not a symptom. PMS is
2: not a symptom. Women may have those symptoms, may have pain, may have PMS, may have things going on, and also have been told they have PCOS, but those symptoms are not from the PCOS, right? So just to clarify, because so many times I've had women—yeah, that's really it's important. Really, that's really it's important. Really important. And back to endometriosis, I've had so many patients who are in terrible pain. Imagine this scenario: you're in terrible pain. The doctor doesn't really know what's going on. The doctor does an ultrasound, sees polycystic ovaries, which many women have at one time or the other, which doesn't really mean anything, but says to you, you have polycystic ovaries and both you and the doctor are thinking, oh, good. Okay. That's an explanation for the pain. In reality, you actually have endometriosis that wasn't seen on the ultrasound and that nobody is talking about because it's like, you know, hidden, difficult to diagnose conditions. So then I guess I've had these patients and readers that told, okay, I'm in pain Someone saw polycystic ovaries. Okay, so now I'm going to reduce sugar and do all these things for PCOS. And my pain is unchanged because the treatments for PCOS don't treat pain.
1: Right. Okay. So, Interesting. Yeah, I Interesting. Think that's really important that's so for, huge. for listeners to yeah. hear. Yeah. You've thrown a lot of uh, knowledge bombs yeah. in this podcast <laughs> <Yeah>. sorry. <laughs> so the symptoms of PCOS
2: are, by definition, by how the whole condition is defined, are excess meal hormones. So facial hair severe acne, not just a little bit of acne, but it's pretty severe usually with true PCOS and potentially male pattern hair loss, like a top of the head hair loss. So those are the main symptoms, plus not ovulating regularly, having what are called anovulatory cycles, cycles where you don't ovulate, so you don't make progesterone, which in the big picture, it's a problem because if you don't make progesterone, then the uterine lining can become too thick. This is something I mentioned earlier. I just, when I was talking about Mm -hmm. The one reason that women with PCOS should potentially have an ultrasound is to check whether that's happening, whether their uterine lining is thickening because of the lack of progesterone. So those are symptoms. Those are all real. I mean, PCOS is very real. It's just a question of, yeah, arriving at the proper diagnosis and not being told you have PCOS when you have either endometriosis or you have... What we talked about earlier, undereating or what's called hypothalamic amenorrhea, because the new research is that a large number of women with who've lost their periods due to undereating are actually being told they have PCOS because they have
1: polycystic ovaries. That just like boils my blood. Yeah. Yeah. So in that vein, and I know you talk about it a lot in your book, which is why it's so vital. I think for really every every woman or everyone that ovulates to to have a copy of. It. How should we be talking to uh, medical professionals, doctors, about you know? our experiences.
2: Yeah. Well, I provide some very specific examples in the book because you need almost a script. <laughs> like you need to know what to say to the doctor. So you're speaking doctor speech. So, you know, with the case of endometriosis, I, sp- the, I think the example I give is say to the doctor, okay, I'm in pain. And just to, to illustrate that, I take, you know, whatever it is, like maximum dose eight Tylenol per day or something and I take this many painkillers and it doesn't even touch it like I can't even get off the couch and go to work on those days because I'm in so much pain like just to really kind of quantify it for the doctor so they're not just like, oh yeah period you have period pain you know so does everyone no yeah, I have okay. real pain and then say look I would like to see a gynecologist for further investigation to see if this might be endometriosis I think you have to ask the family doctors just point blank about that. Just say, Is could this be endometriosis? I would like to speak to a specialist about this and hopefully yeah. end up with a specialist who knows what they're doing because, I mean, also they should, you would hope, as a gynecologist. But I mean, some gynecologists know more about endometriosis than others. And a good gynecologist can diagnose it based on symptoms, on palpation, on the right kind of ultrasound. And so then you can start to make a plan. So that's one example of how to speak to your doctor. The other example I give, specific example, is to say to the doctor, look, I'm not ovulating. I know I'm not ovulating because I tracked my temperatures. And that means there's something wrong. You know, I, I'm wondering if I might have PCOS. I'd like to have a blood test for male hormones and insulin. And I'd like to try to understand, you know, obviously also, could you say to the doctor, could you please rule out other reasons that I might not be ovulating? Now, in an ideal world that would be that would work well. But unfortunately, I had a firsthand account from a patient who w- did that, went to their doctor with her temperature charts, which are you know, tracking morning temperatures is how you can track ovulation. And she said to her doctor, her I think this was a gynecologist, she said, You can see from my charts that I'm not ovulating. You know, I'd like to explore why. And the doctor said to her, Oh no, that's not a thing. <laughs> that's not a thing. Oh my, Just take, oh my take gosh. Well. And so, you know. in that case in that case I would say get a different doctor but like I would say it you know temperature tracking is a thing (laughs) yeah
1: yeah
0: so well and I think that that's important what you just said about finding a different doctor I think it's like the doctor cannot be the authority of your body and what they're saying to you doesn't feel right you're allowed to get a second opinion exactly
1: yes what what are you beyond some of the supplements that you kind of mentioned? What are some of the the other natural remedies or even dietary um, suggestions that you recommend for relieving PMS?
2: I mean, at the end, I guess I will say just to make the case that the ones that have already been mentioned—magnesium, vitamin B six, vitex or tree, reducing histamine—those work that's going to work for the majority of listeners i would say so just to take heart to take heart like you might not need to go too much further i mean yes i mean there can be other ways to reduce inflammation other dietary changes to reduce inflammation i find zinc can be quite helpful for pms because zinc is just really good for brain health and neurotransmitter mm-hmm. health mm-hmm. as well i guess for some women there could be a case to be made for sometimes taking some progesterone or natural progesterone i do in the book, I do recommend that for a few things. It's not my first point of call. You know, I don't think it's like the fix-all for everything, but it can certainly relieve specifically kind of premenstrual headaches and premenstrual migraines. I would look at
1: progesterone. Okay, good to know. Yeah. And, and would you recommend this like in conjunction with a specific diet or do you think that it's okay to be taking, you know, if, if it's right for you to be taking these kind of in isolation? I know some people vary on that and how kind of dogmatic they are. Um, no, I think
2: I think it's, I, yeah, I don't have a one diet fits all. Definitely. I mean, I've, I've definitely seen that through my 20 years of practice that some, you know, I'll just get used dairy as the example, like when cows dairy is a problem, it's really a problem. Like it can be a big driver of period pain and PMS and, but no. it's not the case for everybody. So occasionally I'd say, Half the time, I might see a patient where I'm like, okay, no, I actually think you're okay with dairy. And I give some clues in the book as to how you might be able to figure out whether you're okay with dairy or not. And then for that yeah, patient, I might yeah. just say, let's just try some B6. Like it's very boring, but, you know, and on its own. And then she might find that, okay, that's just all I needed to kind of just get me, you know, reduce my symptoms enough to where I'm happy. Yeah. Or, you know, if she wants to go further, because keep in mind, not everybody necessarily needs to have zero symptoms I mean I held I held that out as the ultimately what's possible for women is to have zero symptoms but I don't know that one of the things I'm troubled about in the wellness industry is this idea of constant constant kind of self-improvement project that not this idea that our health our health is just never good enough it could always be better we could always you know this and it's exhausting or that we should
0: never feel pain or we should never feel tired yeah. Yeah,
2: so with some of my patients if they're like no, I'm good, you know, I I have a little bit of PMS but I'm not too worried, you know that B6 took care of 80% of it, then I'm like, good, okay, well, that's all you need to do then. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. 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 yeah, well, and and kind of along those lines, like how how can we learn to use our cycle to our advantage? I mean, maybe having that week where you feel a little bit down yeah. isn't such a negative. Thing. For sure.
2: A lot of women, a lot of people, myself included, I guess would use that you know, potentially that five to seven days before the period is a time for more alone time, maybe if you need it, like in just getting a bit more sleep because, you know, you need to do that. I think there's a, a place for that. All that said, though, uh, you know, I'm I'm quite active in the outdoors. I, I do want my health even premenstrually to be good enough that I can get out and go for a hike and go camping and stuff <laughs> when I want to. Like, yeah, I don't want it to yeah, yeah. interfere with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I remember, I mean having my period before I had my first surgery for endometriosis five years ago versus after the surgery and being like, oh, I can go yeah. camping or I can go to the gym and have my period. And, and that was, like, so revolutionary for me. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We should be able to live our lives. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You've, you've dropped so many knowledge bombs, as I said, and really been able to kind of explain, like, the core reasons underlying so many of these issues. And, and the- Yeah. Your articulation, so I really, really appreciate your time.
0: Yeah, and Laura, is there anything else that we can plug for you? Just anything else that you're working on or launching or how no. Or how, how you get people <laughs> in sure. touch with you? So, how, where, yeah, right. you. Yeah. so my book is
2: Period Repair Manual. It's available from Amazon and, and iTunes and a lot of bookshops. And... My website is larabryden.com. All my social media, including Instagram, is at larabryden. So I'd certainly welcome people to find me there. I'm pretty, on Instagram, I like to do a lot of just kind of educational posts about different things. And the last one, my last, I don't know when this is going to air, but the post as of my Instagram post yesterday on the 2nd of January was about this whole thing, how PCOS cannot be diagnosed by ultrasound. So it's good because you can read a lot of other comments, obviously, from other people's stories and... I encourage people to find me there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much again, Laura. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thanks for having me.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode. How lucky are we that we get to chat to these mega talented folks? I think we're pretty fucking lucky. Hell yes. So if you happen to like it too, share it with your mates and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a thing. And
0: don't forget the conversation doesn't end here. We would love to hear from you. What did you think of today's episode? What else do you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, what kind of conversations are you having? Or maybe
0: what conversations aren't you having?
1: Yeah, good point. Anyway, until next time. Bye.